What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. A private security firm run by a man who once attempted to charge a Netflix subscription model for protecting high schools from school shootings has attempted to overthrow the government of Venezuela, seemingly with the cooperation of some arm of the Venezuelan opposition at one point, and an infamous narco-trafficker. You'd think that this is all made up, right? That this is some kind of script, some sequel to Burn After Reading that they left on the cutting room floor because of the coronavirus. In fact, this all happened. This is real life, and it's what we're going to talk about on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. This is going to be so fun. <laughs> yeah, we are fascinated by the story. We're obsessed with it. It Last week we talked about aliens, and this honestly might be weirder than aliens. We need an extended coronavirus break at this point in time. So we're going to talk about what what has to be like the strangest story in world politics, like certainly of 2020, right? Maybe uh, in the past five years, I don't know. It's just, it's mind boggling how many layers of weirdness there are associated with this. And and uh, though we're going to laugh a lot about the harebrainedness of the scheme, there are serious implications, both for Venezuela and for how we think about world politics, and we will get into those. But first, let's talk about the really ridiculous, ridiculous elements of this plot, right? So, Jen, who is this man who is at the epicenter of all of this? One, Jordan Goudreau is his name. Yeah, so Jordan Goudreau is a three-time Bronze Star recipient. He's a Special Forces veteran. He's an ex-Green Beret in the U.S. Army. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's a combat veteran. And he got out of the military and decided to go into business for himself Basically started out by, after Hurricane Maria, going to Puerto Rico, where he was, by his own claim, making a lot of money in the aftermath of a horrible, horrific hurricane. So there's your first clue. And by his own description, his idea for a private security firm came to him in Puerto Rico. And it came after the shooting, the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, the horrific high school shooting. And he said that he saw Parkland And I was like, quote, well, nobody's really tackling this, so I want to fix this. So he started a company, and his idea was to embed former special operations agents posing as teachers inside of schools who would pose as, as he described it, cool shop teachers who would say, hey, what's up, fellas? And then he would go sit down with a kid who's alone playing Dungeons and Dragons and just try to see whether there's any problems. Is that a, is that a direct quote? These are direct quotes, yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll link to the piece. Um, he actually went to an expo where there's this whole economy that's grown up around school shooting solutions. And so he started this company. The company is called Silver Corp USA. I say corp. It's spelled S-I-L-V-E-R-C-O-R-P which would be Silver Corp. He pronounces it Silver Corps, as in Marine Corps, but that's usually with an S. So let's just put that aside. 
And the idea was basically to have these counter-terror agents who could try to get secret intel on potential school shooters, and then who would all be able to quickly snipe a shooter. Okay, so my, my favorite part about this is the pricing model. He yeah. Instead of like getting schools to pay for it, he wanted to charge individual parents at the school $8.99 a month. That's what I meant earlier when I said it's a Netflix subscription model yeah. for so school here's security. The quote. He actually called it a Netflix subscription. He said, <laughs> no. here's the quote. Quote, the beauty of it is, is it's all for the price of a Netflix subscription. So it's really hard to argue with me about, well, it costs too much. You can't tell me that. He said that he wanted to bill the parents of each student directly for $8.99 a month so that his staff could remain independent from any district chain of command. So he basically wanted to bilk scared parents who were worried about their kids being shot while they're at school for a subscription of $8.99 a month for counterterrorism operatives to pose as gym teachers and shop teachers in their schools. That's the background. It's, it's worth noting that this guy also provided private security at a Trump rally at one point um, for reasons, at least one Trump rally that, that I know of, for reasons that I'm not super sure of and will become sort of relevant later on. But Alex, yeah. how did how did somebody who's such a goofball end up getting involved with the Venezuelan opposition at all? So it looks like, and this is just based on reports that we've seen so far, it looks like the Venezuelan opposition, and by opposition, you may remember we've talked on this show before that early last year, this guy named Juan Guaido rose up and said, I'm the new president of Venezuela, the U.S. backed him, so did 50 plus countries. And since then, and it has been more than a year, he's still not the president. Nicolas Maduro is still in charge. So to be clear, Juan Guaido is like the speaker of the National Assembly, right? He's not just some random guy. Right. He is the, the leader of the National Assembly. And so based on the Constitution of Venezuela, there were discussions about that he's at after a rigged election, which people suspect the, the last presidential election in Venezuela was rigged, that therefore he would step in, the person who's in his role would step in and be the interim president. So there's been this struggle right. forever. Or there's been this struggle since early last year. So the opposition is looking at this point for pretty much anything to help get Maduro out and then put Guaido in. And it looks like there were people involved with this, you know, little known sort of select committee of the opposition that's trying to find new options. One of the things they looked at was what about maybe getting commandos into Venezuela and seeing what they can do. And so after multiple meetings that were held between the, sort of the opposition and all these other kinds of companies, here comes Goudreau with his company and is actually offering a cut price rate. Some of the other companies before were looking at around $500 million in, in terms of subscription or of charging for their services. And Goudreau was like, look, I can do it at like around $200 million, And I could also use some of the money that's just lying around in Venezuela to pay myself. So it's like not that much coming out of the Guaido camp. So they hire him. <laughs> they hire him to do this. And uh, to make a, a long story short, trainings happened for about 45-ish days. They, the basic plan was to go throughout the country, take oil fields, start to build like a snowball-like momentum and getting disaffected people in Venezuela to join the resistance movement and eventually make it to Caracas, the capital, kill or capture or whatever Maduro and his cronies and eventually install Guaido. That was literally the plan. So it's important to note that all that 45-day window Alex was talking about happened around October. Uh, and during that time, the Venezuelan opposition started to notice that Goudreau was um, a little erratic, which if you had followed the description that Jen gave of his past activities, should not have surprised anybody. He started asking for a lot of money up front, like several million. They started to doubt that he could fulfill any of the promises 
that he had made about successfully organizing this kind of coup functionally, coup uprising sort of situation in Venezuela, and they ditched him. There, There's a dispute over whether Guaido ever signed a piece of paper that booked Goudreau. It's like a bizarre legal fight over contracting rebellion services where the the opposition shows two pieces of paper. This is all in the Washington Post article detailing the, the TikTok here where the Venezuelan opposition didn't sign, but then Goudreau has one that has Guaido's signature on it. Like, again, it seems like a bizarre situation of dis, like legal disputes over who has bought who on retainer or how right. long the contract was supposed to last for. Uh, and this would all seem internecine and ridiculous, except that Goudreau, whether or not he was actually convinced the Venezuelan opposition was continuing to do this, decided to just go ahead with his plan anyway. And this is where uh, another strange figure comes in. Cliver Alcala, and he was a former major general in Venezuela, real ally of the previous president, Hugo Chavez, who happens to be the mentor for, for Maduro. And uh, he was exiled for multiple reasons, basically not being a Maduro fan, and uh, was sent to Colombia. And uh, he meets Goudreau during a concert. You may remember that Richard Branson, the like multi-billionaire guy behind Virgin Atlantic and all that stuff, he held this concert for aid for Venezuela, which was also an effect a, like, support Guaido rally in Colombia. Alcala ends up meeting Goudreau there, and Goudreau's doing security services for this concert. And actually, if you go to the Silver Corp or Core website, uh, whatever you want to call it, you will see Goudreau there, like, with a hat on, acting like he's leading things, but people are kind of not paying attention to him based on the photo. But either way, um, like <laughs> that, that's on the website. And uh, <laughs> sort of start talking about this plan that, hey, we could consider like a coup. We could consider this kind of option. And in fact, like there is support for it. So Alcala, in effect, it seems, at least it's the insinuation so far, kind of convinces Goudreau to continue to go with this plan despite this like sort of discussion uh, on the sidelines with the opposition. To be clear, uh, Alcala is not just like some random disaffected Venezuelan general. He uh, was a former major general in the Venezuelan army who is currently uh, in the U.S. because he is suspected of importing metric tons of cocaine. Um, and is generally understood to be like a wanted international narcotics dealer. Again, assuming the charges are proven, but that is what federal authorities are saying. And so this guy somehow takes it into his mind that it's his job. He has uh, emerged after working allegedly with the Venezuelan government to do this drug dealing as an opposition figure, that he's decided that it's his job and his authority to work with this Goudreau character to try to overthrow the government as it exists. So the plan keeps going until we learn this weekend, on Sunday and on Monday, that the Venezuelan government has caught some people who they call terrorists trying to infiltrate their country via the shores. And it turns out two of them are Americans who are carrying identifying documents. Like they have their passports with them when they're on some kind of unauthorized covert raid to try to overthrow the Venezuelan government. I just, I can't believe this. And they have, they've organized and linked up with some disaffected former Venezuelan military people who had been based in Colombia, who had left there. And the idea was to start this kind of insurrection. And not only that, like not only did like this fail pretty quickly, but Goudreau released a video where he's filmed with a Venezuelan opposition military guy 
talking and describing his military plans. He also tweeted it and added Donald Trump in the tweet about the operation starting. But first, I want to listen to a little bit of the video so so you know we're not making this up. Just a little bit of background. You may remember earlier in the Venezuelan opposition timeline, Guaido, Juan Guaido himself put out this video that was kind of like this uh, announcing the rising up of this um, you know, military opposition. And he's like, was filmed basically saying like, all soldiers, all military people come to my side and let's rise up against Maduro. And it was meant to be like this rallying the troops of like announcing like to everyone, like it's okay to do this. So this kind of seems like it's trying to copy that. Like it sounds really stupid to announce that you're like launching a coup while the operation that's supposed to be super clandestine is going on. But I think that's actually where that kind of idea came from. So just to kind of set the scene, there's two guys. One is Jordan Goudreau. The other is this former Venezuelan National Guard guy who also happened to be, it's believed, behind this attempted drone attack on Maduro at this rally that failed also. Anyway, the Venezuelan guy looks kind of kitted out with like military stuff. And then Jordan Goudreau is wearing a gray polo shirt and a ball cap and khakis, which looks to be his like go-to cosplay Tactabro outfit. At 1,700 hours, a daring amphibious raid was launched from the border of Colombia deep into the heart of Caracas. Our men are continuing to fight right now. Our units have been activated in the south, west, and east of Venezuela. Commander Nieto is with me, is co-located, and Commander Sique is on the ground now fighting. <laughs> co-located. Co-located. <laughs> Uh, he, he literally just says is with me and then he's like, no, no. How do I sound more military, yeah. tactical, and smart? Co-located. That's what it is. I was supposed to say like forward deployed. I didn't even- <laughs> uh, yeah. So he launches this video. He tweets about this operation that's going on. Turns out that these two boats full of Venezuelan disaffected former soldiers, opposition people, and a couple of American guys with their military IDs uh, basically got captured. Um, and, and to be clear, like the, this arresting happened over two days. So there was like uh, Operation 1 on Sunday, May 3rd, and then Operation 2 uh, on, on May 4th, and that's where the Americans were captured. And it, it's possible, um, so, so the estimates, at least that Goudreau says that like 800 people are involved. That's not the amount of people that have either been killed or captured. Um, some people were killed in this, about eight people on Monday, especially. It's possible, and there are some people who believe they're just like some members of this team of this operation, like now hiding out in Venezuela's jungles uh, or in different parts of the country because they were crossing over the land border from Colombia. So this may not be over. A lot of the Goudreauites might still be part of this operation. In fact, Goudreau says the operation is ongoing. So, but we we don't have any evidence to believe that, right? Like, there's no there are no more reports coming out of Venezuela of these dudes roaming around doing insurrection. No, or but whatever it is. No, but there also probably wouldn't be. I mean, they'd probably be hiding out at this point. I mean, it, that's if you believe in Goudreau saying there were these many people. They weren't just coming in amphibiously a.k.a. on fishing boats. Like, let's not give this any more credit than it deserves. They could have come in by land and are trying to do X, Y, Z things or laying low because they figured out that this was a bust. Um, but that that is sort of the implication of the belief is that there's probably more out there and, and they may be trying to be coming back. So there's one other thing that I think it's important to note here on, on that in terms of like the question of credibility, right? So we have Goudreau on one side who's not the most credible guy, but the other side where we're getting information is the Maduro government, which obviously also has 
reasons to exaggerate things and create its own narrative here. But according to Colombian officials who talked to the AP and other outlets, because again, a lot of this planning happened in in like Colombia, according to Colombian like officials at like the embassies and others, like they all knew kind of what was going on. And it seems like, according to Maduro, they also knew what was going on and that they actually, they claimed they had infiltrated the entire operation. And at one point, one person said something to the effect of, we were so deeply infiltrated in this operation that sometimes we had to pay for their meetings. So, (laughs) according to, and it seems kind of credible because the Colombian officials also were basically saying like, yeah, we knew everything they were doing. Uh, So, it seems like they may have contacted the Maduro regime and said like, hey, there's this thing going on and we don't want any part of it. It's happening on our soil, so come get your boys. But that seems like they may have fully infiltrated it, which means that they may actually know where people are. But according to Goudreau, this operation's still going on, but he's also now desperately pleading with the U.S. government to get the two Americans out because these two Americans are being held by the Maduro regime Uh, He's contacted the State Department. I think Pompeo has said that they're working to try to get the Americans home. So that's that's kind of where the situation is right now. So now that we've arrived at sort of the end of what we know about this truly absurd situation, we're going to take a quick break. And then we're going to talk about, you know, what this means, right? Like why this isn't just like a series of, of bad and potentially deadly jokes, but actually something significant and important in terms of Venezuelan politics and the way that we think about the role of private military contractors in global politics. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back. Thank you, worldly listeners, for sticking with us during that really, truly bizarre first half where we talked about a very strange, strange, strange story of an attempted coup in Venezuela. Now we're going to talk about what it means, like why it matters. And my first thought uh, is one that I've seen from from Latin America journalists, experts, and so on. Is that 
This is like a godsend to the Venezuelan government, right? The Maduro regime has long been facing a crisis of legitimacy due to its awful economic policies and broad social collapse in Venezuela, its descent into outright authoritarianism from a kind of pseudo-veiled authoritarianism to begin with. The coronavirus crisis is not helping things. And now, all of a sudden, they get to run their favorite playbook, which is blame the Americans. Because there have been American coup attempts in Venezuela before against the sort of leftist regime that's been in power for nearly two decades now. And there's nothing they like more than to say the Americans are trying to topple us. You need to keep us in power to protect your sovereignty and to head off Yankee imperialism. And while there's no evidence of direct U.S. government involvement in this, though there are some strange links between Goudreau and Trump's body man, Keith Schiller, uh, it it just seems like the whole harebrained scheme, while it was designed to overthrow Maduro, will end up probably helping him extend his hold on power. It's completely possible. Um, and and all, all that you said is right. And what kind of bothers me is when I you know started to read the story and, and think about it, my, well, my first thought was like, why did this happen? And honestly, it was I was just like, these are a bunch of tactic bros trying to make Trump happy by deposing the guy he's trying to remove. Now we know there's sort of a deeper backstory. So that theory has somewhat gone out the window. But what bothers me is that all I want to be able to say about this is that like the U.S. had nothing to do with it. I want to be able to say that with 100% confidence because it's so, I mean, like what 2020 needed was a stupid Bay of Pigs and we got it. And so like, it, it, I want to be able to say that the U.S. would not, that the Trump administration would not have anything to do with it. And what we've heard so far basically from everyone is like, no, there was no U.S. involvement. Pompeo weirdly qualified it by saying there was no direct U.S. involvement, which that might have been a misspeak, but also may have been telling more than we thought. But either way, the fact that the Trump administration has been so gung-ho in getting rid of Maduro, in trying to change that regime and regimes elsewhere in the, in the world, like, it's just not impossible that this was somewhat U.S. government-backed. The connections with the Trump administration and the Trump campaign that Zach laid out exist. The campaign to remove Maduro, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, that's part of the politics here, right? We have an administration in the U.S. that could conceivably not only, like, somewhat greenlight this, but believe it might work. That only plays into Maduro's hands. I, you may have noticed, did a, a bit of a deep dive uh, into Silvercorp or Silvercore and just... Yeah, uh, Jen, Jen is like thoroughly obsessed with this company and stalked their Instagram for a really long time. Their Twitter and their Facebook and their YouTube is all taken down. But their Instagram is still up as of time of recording. And what's interesting is that on a lot of the posts, which are just usually just photos of Jordan Goudreau trying to look badass, there's like one of him just running on a treadmill for like five minutes um, not totally sure why, but a lot of the ones like with him with like weapons and doing like cool training exercises uh, is they have like hashtag MAGA, um, hashtag Republican, hashtag Libertarian, hashtag 2A for Second Amendment, hashtag gun rights, hashtag, there's like 600 hashtags, but several of them have MAGA and Republican. And one, perhaps he's just trying to use that for marketing purposes, right? To get more people to follow that sort of thing you know, to see his posts. But the fact that he also did security at the Trump rally, like he was clearly trying to make inroads with the Trump administration. That's clear. The second thing is that the Trump administration has put a $15 million bounty on Maduro's head for, you know, capture. The the alleged pretext is drug trafficking, correct? Right, right. They have charged him with drug trafficking. And so they've 
put a $15 million bounty to have him captured and extradited, sent to the U.S. to face drug trafficking charges. You know, if I'm Jordan Goudreau and I am constantly looking for ways to use my special forces skills to make money, which is clearly his MO, and I see, hey, there's $15 million bounty on capturing Maduro, like that's a pretty strong financial incentive on its own, you know, even beyond like I want to, you know, impress Trump. Like, I think this guy's motivation was mostly like money, uh, honestly, just from looking at it. So there's that. I think that's important to note. We keep using this phrase tactabro during the conversation, which I don't know if you're familiar with as a listener, but it's like a it's a subcultural thing in the United States where you get a bunch uh, of guys who are super into dressing up and acting like they're in the military. They may be ex-military, they may not, but it's it's about like creating an aesthetic of mm-hmm. being a man who is a warrior and who looks like one and dresses like one and has a lot of guns and acts as one. And and it's often done for social media consumption. People go out and they shoot stuff on the weekends, right? It's a very niche American subculture that is also closely linked with political conservatism, right? Like generally speaking, when you refer to somebody as a tactic bro, you would think of them as being a Second Amendment enthusiast. And so it's very, very difficult to separate out the politics of it from the economics of it in the way that I think Jen was was very accurately and adeptly pointing it out there. And it also creates problems for attribution, right? In another country, let's say uh, we were talking about, I don't know, someplace with a weak state where there are a number of armed militias. If one of those militias was aligned with the state but didn't obviously act on its orders and went out and tried to like take out the head of a rival or hostile government, many people would be wondering was this in fact done with the tacit permission of the government? Or would they they might say the the government could have stopped this. It didn't. They own responsibility for it. And so in the US, we have this weird situation where we're a developed country. So people don't think in terms of weak and lax governance, creating a culture of militias and armed groups that claim to be acting on behalf of the state. But the conjunction of private military contracting as a phenomenon, uh, politically conservative tactabros as a culture merging with sort of MAGA phenomena creates, in this case, a real sense of uncertainty. Again, for we don't know the U.S. government was involved. We have no evidence to suggest that it was to begin with. But how I don't even know how you can definitively say it, it wasn't, right? And it's reasonable for the Venezuelan government, which is normally not very reasonable, to be pointing out that there or suggesting that there might be some kind of U.S. government association here. It's just, it's a very murky and difficult situation and, and complex one due to the natures of the conflicts and the social structures and political structures in question. I, can I got to be honest about one thing? So the the Maduro government has shown like some of the documents of the of the Green Berets we mentioned, like the passport. Uh, the one that kind of got and I, and part of me thought like maybe these were fakes or whatever. That's totally possible. The one that got me though was because it was super specific. Was um, an expired cat card that one of them one of the Green Berets had. And the cat card is like one of these special ID badges that you can use to get into the Pentagon or other government facilities. If I'm the Venezuelan government and I'm trying to, I guess, falsify a document to make, you know, to make my claim that these are Americans after me, one of the last things I would pretend to make would be an expired cat card. It's so stupid that it makes it all completely real to me. Like to me, I just cracked up at the guy's VA card, the choose VA, right. the, Veterans Affairs ID. Exactly. Like the passport I get, and you could, in theory, falsify one of those, but like. 
if you're trying to make the case that these are like, if you're trying to lie, would your thought be, well, let's use his expired like entry card into the Pentagon that he would carry? Of course you wouldn't do that. So the fact that they got access Adam, to that, I like, would. no, the, I, I disagree. The fact that you have access well, to that. Now like, I would. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> now that I know that it's credibility marking in the eyes of, of experienced Pentagon journalists such as yourself, Alex, uh, next time I try to manufacture a fake coup threat that's threatening my uh, narco-terrorist government, I, in fact, will be using expired cat cards to show that they're after me. Worldly exclusive must credit. Next time Zach is the narco-dictator, we know how he's going to falsify documents. (laughs) Okay, but here's the thing, is they don't have to lie and falsify it because, again, Jordan Goudreau keeps talking. True. He's given interviews to Bloomberg and to The Washington Post and others where he's literally saying like, no, these are my guys. We tried to launch a coup. Like, again, he made a video. I agree. And tweeted about it. There's a photo of like some of the cool guys who were in this raid, like sitting at a burger joint, like all wearing like white polo shirts. I don't know. They're sitting around. They also have MAGA hats on the table. Right. Yeah. They have a red MAGA hat on the table. There's also just like a bottle of ketchup and a table tent for like cheese fries. Like it's just ridiculous. It was was the worst recreation of Reservoir Dogs I've ever seen. (laughs) <laughs> really bad. Although I have to say now I want cheese fries. 100%. Uh, and and to go to a restaurant. I would really like to go to a restaurant. Um, that, <laughs> like to go literally anywhere. Yeah. Um, but so the thing that you're talking about, you know, I, I want to get into a little bit about, you know, whether you can connect this to the U.S. government and like the issues of legality here. So this is kind of a, a long time problem with private military contractors that started, well, started a long time ago. But Um, we saw this a lot during the Iraq war with Blackwater, right? Now, they were actually contracted. This is important. They were contracted with the U.S. government to provide security, usually like force protection, so protecting, you know, high-ranking individuals or facilities, things like that. And, you know, there were incidents of Blackwater operatives, all of whom, by the way, have like top-end gear. They have like the fanciest gear, which really angered a lot of the like regular U.S. Army guys who were like, cool, I have a gun that's falling apart. These guys have like the cutting edge equipment, but awesome. I guess I'm just fighting for my country. These guys are fighting for money. There was an incident where they shot and killed like unarmed Iraqi citizens like in their cars. And there was this issue of like, well, how do we prosecute them? Are they enemy combatants? You know, does the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the code of law that governs the U.S. military? Like, does that apply to them? Well, they're civilians, so no, that doesn't work. But like civilian law, does that really cover them? Because they're acting in a military sort of capacity. So there was all this kind of legal confusion. But that's kind of different. It's important to understand that, that they were in this legal limbo. But this guy, it partly matters, right? Like if the U.S. government was involved or not, because this guy and this company did some stuff that maybe wasn't legal. And so if they were Working with the U.S. government, that's one thing because they could have different kinds of legal cover. But it looks like right now, according to the latest, uh, this AP story from yesterday, Jordan Goudreau is now being investigated by the U.S. federal law enforcement for arms trafficking because it looks like he just kind of went rogue. And the thing is, you literally can't do this kind of thing. You can't send arms. And it looks like he did try to get arms shipments, allegedly, to this crew and, you know, this boat and all this kind of stuff. And even just providing military tactical information 
even that alone can actually potentially get him in hot water in terms of, like, you have to notify the State Department that you're doing this. You have to, like, let the government know. You have to get permission. Like, they have to sign off on this. You can't just go around arming other countries, arming militia groups around the world. And so in terms of, like, the legal uh, limbo of private military contractors, in this situation, it actually looks like kind of like a good thing in the sense that he doesn't have any kind of government cover. And that may be what actually ends up having him face potential charges because he just did this as like a rogue operation. This is just so bizarre to me, right? It seems like we almost have an international legal system that incentivizes criminality in these cases, by which I mean, right, we have a framework for the operation of private military corporations. They're well-established. They've been legitimized by the U.S. government and uh, other states internationally. There are allegedly rules as to how they're supposed to operate. I mean, hell, Blackwater has links to the highest levels of the U.S. government at this point. Blackwater, the head is Eric Prince, and he is the brother of Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education. Setting that those particulars aside, right, so we're, we're in this world where these companies are allowed to do their thing. They're allowed to be mercenaries. But to be a mercenary, functionally, to do mercenary things often involves doing activities that we understand to be illegal or that should be illegal, like arms trafficking, for example. You're not supposed to arms traffic. That is one of those things in international laws that generally people agree on. Sales are supposed to be legitimated by states, so you can have some kind of control over the flow of weapons that prevents civilians from dying unnecessarily or conflicts from being stoked and wars being started. So it's like we've set up a system that is designed to encourage people to go off on their own and try to do bad, dangerous things. We we claim to punish them for it, or at least to try to hold them accountable. But in reality, I mean, there is that that situation in Iraq, Jen, that you were describing. It's very difficult and, and rare, actually, for me to think of instances of real accountability for private military contractors abusing the powers accorded to them lawfully. But this has been a century long problem, right, Jen? You may you may remember a, a guy, a little known guy called uh, Niccolo Machiavelli. Never heard of him. Um, he actually is someone that uh, is being more and more, more and more recognized. Yeah, he's nowadays, more like more recognized. Douglas. <laughs> so he's, you know, someone that military strategists and national security people all read and quote liberally. Uh, Tactabros tend to quote him liberally, including you may be surprised to hear one Jordan Goudreau. He has this profile on this entrepreneurial network website, which that's a whole nother mess, but. He says, as Machiavelli said, fortune is like a woman. She favors the bold, which like, okay. I wish you guys could see my face right now. It's pretty horrified. Yeah. But I feel like maybe Jordan Goudreau should have studied Machiavelli a little closer because in The Prince, Machiavelli's famous work where he's giving advice to the, you know, a young prince on how to lead. He has a whole section warning about how mercenaries and mercenary forces are literally, quote, useless and dangerous. And says, if one holds his state based on these arms, he will neither stand firm nor safe, for they are disunited, ambitious and without discipline, unfaithful, valiant before friends, cowardly before enemies. They have neither the fear of God nor fidelity to men, and destruction is deferred only so long as the attack is. And he goes on and on and basically says they aspire to their own greatness, uh, and they're they're useless, and that using mercenary forces uh, is dangerous and is not the way to, to hold power. So... I feel like that juxtaposition is really just just kind of, you know, I'm sure there are there are men and women who have served, who who did their time in the military and who want to use those skills for good purposes, right? Not every military contractor, not every 
former military person who decides to go into business for themselves is just looking to make a quick buck, right? If the military is all you know for your life uh, and those are your skill sets, right? It makes sense. You can do this in a way that like helps your country and then you can do it in a way that is literally arms trafficking and may actually have ended up boosting and bolstering the Maduro regime. So that's kind of where I come down on that. So two points about Machiavelli. Um, First, the prince was written in the 16th century. Uh, so when we yeah. say this isn't a new problem, we mean this is like literally not a new problem. Yeah, it's a, it's a perennial problem of global politics, and one that you would expect modern frameworks of law, legality, the rule of armed conflict to have put some kind of hold on. And I'm sure it's less bad. I'm not an expert on 16th century mercenary practices and laws, but I'm, I'm sure it's considerably it was considerably wilder then than it is now. But it still obviously isn't solved. And second, I think there's there's actually a really important insight. In Machiavelli's treatment here, Jen, that you you skipped over a little bit, just his point is there's kind of a double bind about the employment of uh, mercenaries by the state, right? So either on the one hand, they are competent, in which case they will accomplish objectives that you set out for them, but they also have their own goals, ones that may conflict and override, supersede the objectives of the state, and generally could end up biting the hand that is allegedly feeding them and backfiring on the leaders. So that's that's if they're competent. And if they're incompetent, of course, they will fail at whatever objectives you set out for them. So either way, they're an exceedingly risky option for any government to try to use. And it, it's striking to me how that remains true. Like, there's no world in which under at least under the contemporary system, that governing authorities have been able to prevent private military contractors from pursuing their own agendas, which are typically money at this point, but they pursue money and glory and fame in uh, in ways that are often detrimental and harmful to the international political status quo. And then there are the incompetent ones like Goudreau who try to do that and screw it up and end up enhancing the legitimacy and popular support of, of a truly nasty dictator in Venezuela. This was clear to sharp observers like Machiavelli in the 16th century. The fact that our governments are are not only not grappling with this, but continuing to, in the case of the U.S., employ private military contractors in really sensitive operations, uh, I find it very, very troubling, the degree to which these kinds of people have penetrated. But honestly, like, it's not even the U.S. at this point. Like, as far as we can tell, like we said, the U.S. isn't involved in this. But Guaido seems to have been at least up until a certain point, right? Even if he didn't greenlight the final operation, like Juan Guaido and and his opposition buddies literally did look into having this guy run an operation for them. So it feels like to me, maybe Guaido should have read Machiavelli a little closer, I guess. Defected soldiers like seem to have been somewhat conned into participating into in this really ill thought out plan and are now dead. So I don't want to say conned. Um, That's okay. I do. Yeah. But like, because there have been tons of people in the, in the Venezuelan sort of defected community that have thought about how do we overthrow Maduro using force? This could have just been another vehicle. Uh, and it's not like, right. But they thought this guy was competent is the thing. Or they, or they didn't. Or, and, and they thought at least this, like there's going to be some money behind this and there's some arms behind that. And there were. Cond almost seems a little too far. I think the, the, what one issue that the, the U.S. government, I've talked to government officials about this, 
has always been like there was a concern that there would be certain elements of Venezuelan military defectors that would consider an option like this and potentially kind of turn this, you know, and light this powder keg. Um, But U.S. officials would would consistently say, like, this was always the insane option. As the Washington Post, even almost a similar quote that I got, this is an insane option to consider using these kinds of folks to to lead a coup. So I wouldn't say con. I think there was was a, a source to tap there. Also, one other thing is there is some dispute about Machiavelli um, and whether he didn't like military contractors. Apparently, there's some translation issues with ordinance and turn into mercenary. But either way, I think the, the point your point stands. And then my last point on mercenaries, just in general, is like they're also anti-democratic, right? I mean, standing militaries are responsible well, in democracies are, are responsible to the people. Um, they are at least in theory. at least in theory, right? But they are like in the United States. The U.S. military is your military, um, and the leaders you elect send them into battle or not, and at some point you can choose to remove the commander-in-chief if you see fit. That's my my biggest sort of macro issue with mercenaries is that they are responsible to the dollar. They are not responsible to democratic politics, and that makes them potentially very dangerous because they can do what the heck they want as long as the money keeps flowing in, and they do. I mean, look, like, whether... Regardless of what was really behind going on with this raid, I think we now know um, this daring amphibious raid. Um, But like, I think what we know is that it only takes a sort of delusional tacto bro, a couple of disaffected people from a country and a decent amount of money and ammo and you can upend international politics for a week. That's uh, that's a perfect place to uh, bring our episode to a close. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who always does such a lovely job and who jumped in last week. Sadly, uh, she had no interviews with uh, Venezuelan astronomers this time around who can tell us about <laughs> the involvement of aliens in this potential coup. And we want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS Via, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash VIYA.